In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Morning. A little bit different service this morning. Fifth Sunday, so we're doing a morning prayer as we've done over the last year or so. So I'm going to say a word, and I want you to notice your reaction uh, to this word. Is it a, a warm, positive, a joyful feeling, or is it um, a feeling of anxiety, uh, sadness, maybe anger, something else, or maybe a mix? All right, you ready for the word? Family. Family. What's your visceral reaction? Because families can be complicated, complicated right? Your highest highs and your lowest lows, you're probably related to in some, in some way. Um, I heard a speaker telling about a woman uh, who did not think that she could do what he was telling her to do. He was a consultant, I think a financial planner. And, um, and she wailed. She said, but I came from a dysfunctional family. And his response was, honey, we all did. Um, Jesus tells this beloved story that lets us know dysfunctional families are nothing new, right? I don't think the parable of the prodigal son is actually told to, to give us a solution to the dysfunction in our families, but, but it certainly uh, lets us know as, as the setting for what he wants to say that, that they're nothing new. The dysfunctional family uh, in this uh, parable uh, is the context for what Jesus really wants to talk about, and that is the lavish gracious and unrelenting love of our Heavenly Father. So this morning we want to take a look at the setting of the parable, the siblings in the parable, and the solution that the parable offers. So the setting, the siblings, and the solution. So the setting for the parable is really one thing that has been drawing my attention this past week as I've been going through this um, our reading begins, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And all the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so, that is, you know, given the situation, the grumblers and the people who were coming, Jesus told them this parable. And think about what Luke, our, our author, is telling us here. We have the Son of God, who is the most righteous person who has ever walked the face of the earth, uh, that he has incredible magnetism for the irreligious people in his culture. The cheating and betraying tax collectors, the promiscuous and pernicious, the riffraff who have not darkened the door of a synagogue for who knows how long, these are the ones who find themselves drawn to Jesus, the very height of holiness. And he welcomes them with open arms. But on the other hand, you have the religious. And they're the ones who are grumbling and joyless. They're the moral, the law-abiding, the church-going, the Bible-reading, the tithers, the eyes dotted and T's crossed Pharisees. 
If he was holy, he wouldn't have anything to do with those people. You can see the irony that the holy people are not drawn to the holy Lord. Because the holy people can't believe, they cannot imagine that the holy Lord would be drawn to unholy people. There's no joy at all that Jesus is reaching people they hadn't been able to reach. Because from the Pharisees' perspective, these are people who didn't want to be reached. They're the ones with the problem. And so it's into this setting that Jesus tells the famous parable of the prodigal son. Really a parable of two sons. Because Jesus is telling this parable to challenge what we might call the religiousism of the Pharisees. He's not questioning the morality of their actions. He's not uh, saying that they're not reading their Bible enough or not giving enough. Which is what some of us might expect. I mean, many assume that the goal of Christianity is that its followers be good, moral, law-abiding citizens. And Jesus emphatically is saying, no, that's not the heart of Christianity. See, the goodness of the Pharisees is not the problem. Rather, Jesus is challenging that they have weaponized their goodness. And in doing so, they have lost the forest for the trees. They are eager for condemnation rather than for restoration. Now, we're sitting here and we're in a fairly religious setting, right? And I can't speak for you, but I know that I look a lot more like the Pharisees than I look like the ones who are coming around Jesus. I mean, don't get me wrong, I got a little rebellion in me too. But at least on the outside, I look a lot more like a Pharisee than a tax collector. Some people might call me religious. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I read my Bible, I tithe, I, I'm moral by most standards. <laughs> Pretty good about dotting my I's and crossing my T's. I don't know if you identify more uh, right away with the religious or with the riffraff, but when Jesus tells a story uh, to challenge the religiousism of the religious... I know I better perk up, pay attention. And it's a great story, isn't it? So let's take a look at the two siblings in this parable. we got the punk younger brother with the mohawk and the leather jacket. And his dad, uh, he, or he tells his dad he does not want to wait for his dad to die before he gets what's coming to him. He wants it now. And rather than kick this sniveling rebel to the curb, can you tell which brother I am? I mean, any good patriarch in that society would have just said, forget it, you're out of the house. But rather than kick him to the curb, the father gives him what he asks for. I mean, there's no telling how much trouble it was to liquidate his assets and to sell off all of the property that was coming to him, but Mohawk takes what is his and hits the road. And not surprisingly, Mohawk doesn't have the depth of character to handle his newfound wealth, and he blows it. I mean, he blows it 
financially, but he also blows it morally and spiritually. And he dishonors the family name. And he ends up at what we would call rock bottom. Meanwhile, the elder brother, the firstborn son, the straight-A student, he always colors inside the lines. He's dutifully, uh, he's wearing his pocket protector. You know, and he stayed, he has stayed at home working and working. Because now that Mohawk's out of the way, all this is going to belong to old pocket protector. All right? So, and, and listen, there's, there's a lot to admire about pocket protector. I mean, he, he, he has a strong work ethic. He, he works diligently, follows the rules and the customs of the day. He's worked hard. He did it right. What is worrying about pocket protector is that he is not concerned with what has become of his younger brother. Because if you make your bed, you lie in it. That's his motto. And you can see Jesus' two audiences in these brothers. The tax collectors and sinners, the irreligious riffraff. They're the younger brother with the mohawk. And the morally upright, the law-abiding Pharisees. Well, they're wearing the pocket protector, right? Well, Mohawk wakes up in this pig slop. He comes to his senses. It looks to me like he's got a good idea, but it does not look to me like he has yet had a change of heart. He's just hungry. And that same naive father who gave him what he asked for before will probably feed him if he goes back home. But, you know, surely there is also a sense in which you just know your family is where you're going to be taken care of. I mean, no matter how dysfunctional you've all been in the past, that there's just something that in us that knows that our family at least ought to be the place where we're always loved and cared for. A few weeks ago, uh, we had a young man wander onto the property here. He was high as a kite on who knows what. And Bill McCabe, our facilities manager, and Trent Moore, sat down with him, they fed him, they listened to him, they found out that he knew he'd blown it, and he just wanted to go home. He just wanted to go home. Some of us have been in that prodigal place before, and the truth is, I mean, we're all about three days away from being on the front page of the newspaper. Most of us are on day two. (laughs) And it can happen to any of us, you know, even pocket protectors like me. So let me go ahead and and talk about the solution for this sibling, uh, the Mohawk younger brother, and then we'll circle back around uh, to pocket protector. So Mohawk heads home. and, And while he was still far off, I think that is not just a geographic statement. It's a, it's a spiritual one. Jesus is telling us he's not just still way down the road. It, it was that he had not yet had a change of heart. He's still far off. He's, he's hungry. And, and in this sense, it, he was preparing his speech so that he could get fed. He was still far off and his father saw him right where he was. Shoulders are slumped. He didn't have the big money bag in his hand that he left with. And 
you know, his insides are a knot of fear and shame and probably anger at the world. And his father saw him right where he was, still in every sense far off. And the father was filled with compassion. Emotion in his guts. He's just this sense of relief and joy and empathetic pain for his son and what he's gone through. And, and the father runs to him. You know, men didn't run in that culture. Children ran. Maybe some of the women, but, but not the patriarchs. It was undignified. This father is undignified. Just running to his father. Now, it's so familiar, we can miss it. But, you know, we might expect that the, the father would have just stayed on the porch. Waited for his son to make the whole walk home. Or had a long talk with him. Said, son, if you're coming home, we're going to have to lay down some rules. Or waited, maybe, to make a judgment about the sincerity of the apology. All very reasonable things. But not this father. He ran. He ran to his son. The father ran to the son who had cared more for the father's stuff than for the father because the father cares nothing about the stuff he just wants his son. So Mohawk starts in on his speech. And the father wasn't listening. He just hugs him. And he kisses him. And he puts the family robe on him and the family signet ring. And I think that that's where his heart melted. I think that's where he had the change of heart when he realized there was nothing he could have done to outrun or outsin or outlast his father's love for him. And he realized that as far as the father was concerned, all was forgiven. When he realized the father wasn't going to make him pay for the hurt that he had caused, the father was going to bear that cost himself. He just wanted to love on his boy. It's scandalous, really. I mean, I mean, maybe it's just because I got more pocket protector in me, but it feels crazy to say that none of that stuff mattered. I mean, the, the alcohol... The affair, the abortion, the embezzling, the pornography, whatever it is for you, that stuff matters. I mean, maybe there needs to be healing that has to happen. Or restitution or amends. Or maybe you're coming at it from a different angle. You've been separated from the Father because of grief and loss in your life. You haven't been able to answer the question why that Trent talked about last week. Or you've got something looming ahead of you and the, the fear of the unknown just has you wrapped up and looking at yourself. And the Father's saying that whatever it is, I'm not letting go. We're going to walk through it together, but I'm not letting go because you're home. You're always home with me. And I think that's where the heart finally melted. The boy came home and he celebrated with his dad. He's in the party. For the young man who wandered onto our property, his home was in Pennsylvania. And over the next week or so, Bill and Trent stayed in touch with him. They listened to him. They prayed with him. They found some money and they put him on a bus and sent him home. I wish I could tell you that, that his whole family met him at the bus station. They had a big party. 
Truth is, I don't know. But what I do know is that young man got a taste of the father's love right here. When he, instead of being run off, uh, they fed him, prayed for him, they listened to him, they treated him with dignity. You know, for our prodigals, we pray for rock bottom. And for that moment uh, where they head home. See, the solution the Father offers to Mohawk and the solution that, that the Heavenly Father offers to all of us, prodigal sons and daughters, is unfettered, 200-proof grace. It's grace. It amazes me that not only does the Father love the Son unconditionally, but He's completely unapologetic and unashamed about it. He invites the whole town. He shares it with them. He says, let's have a party. Because no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how long you've been away, the Father's arms are open to you. Now, what about pocket protector? And what about those of us who find ourselves to be a little more like him? See, the elder brother, he's furious. Furious that the Father would extend such a lavish and unapologetic, unqualified welcome for his irresponsible little brother. Pocket protector is totally unconcerned with the relationship, totally without compassion for what his brother has suffered. The elder brother wants justice. Because what he sees, it's not fair. It's not fair. It's not. And what is revealed in this tantrum is that the elder brother's heart has been just as far away from the father's heart as the younger brother's was. He did the work, but it wasn't because he loved his father, it's because he loved himself. He was working for what he was going to get. The younger brother separated his heart from the father by rebellion, but the elder brother separated his heart from the father by his good works. You owe me. You owe me, was his complaint. He wasn't happy to see his brother. He wasn't happy that his father was happy. All he could think about was himself and what he wanted, just like the little brother had done. His life looked entirely different than his punk little brother, but the heart underneath it was the same. Don't miss the solution that the father offers to the elder brother. The father sees him where he is. He's outside the tent. He's got his arms crossed. He's stamping his foot. He's full of rage and self-righteousness. He's waving in the air his long resume of of self-righteous obedience and good works. The father sees him where he is and he runs out to him. And he pleads with him, come into the party. He treats the elder brother exactly the same way with exactly the same 200 proof grace. Everything I have is yours, son. My son. Everything I have is yours. See, the Christian heart may do good works. We we should expect that it will. But good works do not make a Christian heart. What makes a Christian heart is the relationship to Christ. It's the relationship. No, we don't see the heart of the elder brother melt 
the same way we saw the younger brothers. In fact, the parable ends, and we are left wondering, what happened? What happened? Did he stay outside the tent? What What happened? Will the pharisaical son lay down his self-righteousness and his resume and come into the party? We don't know. What we do know is that the Father's lavish love is the solution for both brothers. And the Father's lavish love is the solution for you and for me. He sees us, sees us while we're still far off or whether He sees us if we're standing with our arms crossed, fuming outside the tent. His arms are open. His love is unrelenting and lavish. In fact, His love for you is so lavish that He gave His only Son for you. And Jesus died to build a bridge to your heart. And He rose again to cross that bridge with open arms. So whether you are more like pocket protector or more like mohawk, the question is, will you come home? And will you come into the party? Amen.